chapter 7. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your word and how we need it, how we need your word. Lord, every day, all day, we thank you so much that we can come together just as a family. Just drink it in, Lord. And Father, we know that tonight in, in this book, as we finish it up this evening, there's just a story of redemption, just a foreshadowing of the redemption that we have in Christ. Father, we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him. And Father, we know that all your word is a reflection of him. We want our lives to be a reflection of you, even as we be, look as in a mirror and are transformed into your image, Lord. I, I pray in Jesus' name you'd open the eyes of our hearts our minds, our ears, to what the Spirit is telling us, where He is leading us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Esther. So the Jews had been exiled from Jerusalem, from Israel. They had been brought to Babylon. And 70 years later, a decree went out from the king for them to return, and that's exactly what happened in the book of Ezra and also in Nehemiah. Uh, this is chronicled, the Jews going back, but many, many Jews stayed behind in Babylon, and that is the setting of the book of Esther. And... The theme of this book, we've discussed it, 2 Timothy 2.13, even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. And in this book, you do not see the mention of God. You don't see the mention of heaven, hell, Hades, Sheol, worship, prayer. And that is a reflection of a backslidden people. They should have been back in Israel. They stayed behind because of prosperity. And many times in our life, in the life of people in the body of Christ, they, uh, men and women who once gave their life to the Lord, once were excited about the Lord, at some point they're given a crossroads either go this way with Jesus or this way with your flesh, and they choose the flesh and Weeks turn into months, months turn into years, and they wonder about the faithfulness of God and if he still loves them, if he is still committed to them. And this book is a demonstration that indeed he is, although the real plans and purposes of God are happening back in Jerusalem, to be sure, God was also with these people, even though they were certainly not in the middle of plan A. 
They were plan D or E or G or something like that. But um, the faithfulness of God. And so what happens here, Esther is <coughs> uh, the, the, the queen, queen of, <coughs> of Ahasuerus um, refuses to come out and be put on a pedestal in the middle of a banquet, and so she is deposed. A new queen is chosen. It's Esther. She's a Jewish, but they don't know. The king doesn't know. His court doesn't know. And so she is uh, reigning as queen. She doesn't. Um, uh, she has not revealed uh, this this thing to the king. And. Meanwhile, the prime minister, if you will, of Ahasuerus, king of the Persians, is a man named Haman. He's the Hitler of the Old Testament, and he's a Jew-hater. Um, he is in power, and Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who actually raised her, is in the gate of the city. And whenever Haman comes by, everyone bows down to him, except for Mordecai. And it's revealed to him that, it's revealed to Haman that Mordecai is a Jew, so he surreptitiously, secretly, by device and scheme, gets the king to sign a decree that on a certain day, nine or ten months hence forward in the future, that everyone was to rise up and kill all the Jews, annihilate, kill all of them. And this is brought to Esther's attention and she is uh, asked by Mordecai to, look, you know, you're in a position to do something about it. And she says, well, I'm not allowed just to go into the presence of the king. You're not allowed to do that. Even his wife isn't, you just can't go. You have to be called unless he uh, put up, puts his setter up. And, uh, and he makes a statement to her, well, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And this can be, you know, said of all our lives that... Um, you know, the book of Acts says David accomplished that which was important for his generation. And that's true for you, and that's true for me. And there, it's, it's this is the time that God has appointed uh, for us. And so she steps up to the plate. She goes in, and she asks to have a banquet with the king. And they have a banquet, and... and um, the king had asked her, you can have, ask whatever you wish, half the kingdom, it will be given to you. And she actually puts off her request for a day. And uh, that night, the king has a drink, uh, can't get to sleep rather, and he calls out a couple of his servants to read to him the chronicles of the history of his kingdom. And they're reading to him a record of the different things that had happened since he'd been king and they uh, they read this about this certain event when none other than Mordecai had overheard a couple eunuchs at the king's gate who had plotted to assassinate the um, the king Mordecai had told the king 
this. And so these, the king can't get to bed, and he's listening to the story and says, well, does, has anyone rewarded this Mordecai guy? And they said, well, no. And just at that time, Haman comes in. Haman, the Jew hater, had come in. And the king asked him, well, what shall be done for the man whom the king delighteth, delights to honor? And Haman, being the egomaniac that he was, said, well, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden which has a royal crest on it and let uh, one of the king's most noble princes uh, parade him throughout the city and declare thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And of course little did Haman know that the king... (laughs) wanted an idea of how to reward uh, Mordecai uh, and the king says, okay, I want you to be that prince and I want you to parade Mordecai around the city and Haman does this uh, declaring, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Of course, this was the man uh, that Haman hated with a passion and he got home and he told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And they said, you know something? Haman, if this Mordecai, before you are beginning to fall, is of Jewish descent, you're not going to prevail against him. You will surely bef- uh, fall before him. In other words, even these pagan people could read the writing on the wall that some bad, bad things were in store for Haman. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 7. And it says that, so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. So remember, this is the banquet that she had put off one day to, and the purpose of this banquet is to tell the king whatever her desire was, because she had gone into his presence and she, she, she um, uh, and he said, I'll give you whatever you desire. And she said, okay, I'll tell you at a banquet tomorrow night. They had the banquet. They said, well, you know, let's have one tomorrow night. So she put it off one day. So it says in verse two, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again Uh, said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. And Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. And so she's saying, I want my life to be saved, and also I want my people's life to be saved. Verse 4, for we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. 
So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. And then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? And so this is what happens when you go to banquets of wine, brothers and sisters. You wind up, um, uh, you know, doing stupid things like falling on couches with uh, people that you have no business uh, falling on couches with. And that's what happened to Haman. Uh, this one particularly was someone he didn't want to fall on a couch with. It was the queen. And the uh, king comes in right in the middle of this. And uh, it says... There that um, will he also assault the, the, the queen while I'm in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And so it is said that Persian kings could not look upon the face of someone who was sentenced to die. So this guy, his sentence was on him. Now Harbanah, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. And so here you see this amazing turn of events here. And the very gallows, the, 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 you know, Haman had made this gallows, what was it, 70 feet high, this post for the purpose of killing Mordecai. Haman himself is killed on it. And there's a proverb that says this. It says, whosoever digs a pit shall fall into it. He who rolls a stone will have it come back on him. And you know, as Christians, as Christians, you have no business digging a ditch or a, a pit for another person. Not even your enemies. Do you hear that? Not even your enemies. Not even those people who are grievously harming you at your work, in your neighborhood, your family, who have wronged you. If you have set out digging a pit for their downfall, stop it. You'll wind up falling into it. Galatians 5.14 says this, All of the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And remember, that was written to Christians. <laughs> and so, um, so oftentimes in the church, in the church, someone will be wronged. And, and the first thing that happens in the church when you're wrong, your first reaction often when you're wronged by another Christian is, wait a second, this is a church. That person's a Christian. Of all places not to be wronged, it should be here. And, and the other person, meanwhile, is thinking, 
well, that person's a Christian and they should forgive me. And so it's, it's a, sometimes in, with, with carnal people, it's a formula for disaster, but oftentimes a person is wronged in the church. They're wronged by another brother or sister. They begin digging a pit. They begin biting, devouring. But the Bible says, Jesus says, that the world will recognize you by your love for one another. Let us not dig a pit and fall, uh, dig a pit for someone else to fall in, uh, lest, it, lest we fall into it, lest we consume ourselves and lose our witness. And so, uh, chapter 8, amazing turn of events here. On that day, verse 1, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai became befo- came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman, the Agagite, and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews." And the king held out the golden setter uh, toward Esther. So um, Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king and if I have found favor in the sight and the, th- and the thing seems right to the king and I am pleasing to- in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which, the, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's province. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come upon my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Hashuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring, For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. And so he's making the point that uh, there is a law, it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that once a law was in place, it could not be reversed. If you remember in the book of Daniel, King Darius was tricked by his advisors, his advisors hated Daniel and they tricked the king, King Darius, into making a decree that for 30 days that um, you know, everyone who was to bow down only to him, King Darius, they knew that Daniel prayed three times each day and they knew he would continue doing just that and the, so the decree says, whoever prays to any other god except you, except the king, shall be cast in the den of lions. And of course, Daniel prayed. They brought Daniel before the king. King Darius loved Daniel, but was forced to follow through. And of course, we see there also the Lord rescuing Daniel. And so what Hashuerah says here to Esther is, look, I can't revoke what I've already, uh, a law that I've already passed, but this I will let you do. I'll let you make another 
decree, another decree. And so they pass another decree. Uh, They passed another decree, and they sent it uh, throughout the land that um, on the day that was sealed for them to be destroyed, that on that day... Uh, verse 11 says, By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, to plunder their possessions. And so they were basically given permission to defend themselves, to gather together to mobilize and defend themselves. And so one might, you know, when you see this, and remember this is a foreshadowing of things to come, remember uh, with respect to us there was a decree that was made because of the holiness of God, and it's this, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. And the wages of sin is death. And you know, as a result of that decree, we, the day of our annihilation was fixed, you could say. And there's no way, God being holy, God can't change his character. He can't change, uh, act contrary to his character. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. That's just a a law that's in place. It's an eternal law. God is who he is. He doesn't change his laws or his character. But another decree was went forth, and that is that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The payment for our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Um, We are saved by that second decree. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting that this second decree, kind of like the second decree that we embrace when we're saved, it didn't keep the Jews from battle, did it? They still had a battle coming up. When God sent Joshua and the children of Israel into the promised land, It was the promised land, but it didn't, being in the promised land didn't save the children of Israel from battle. And when we're saved, you know, this is a fallen world, it's filled with strife, (laughs) and God never has promised anyone that he will keep them from that strife, but what he has promised is that there is a hope in the battle. I will never leave you or forsake you. There's a joy and a gladness in the, in the battle. And, um, and so we see here just a foreshadowing there of this. And it's interesting, the, the Jews throughout the empire received this news. It says in verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. 
And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. So there was just great rejoicing as they gathered together and they celebrated this second decree. And it was as if the Lord, they could just... They, they, it was like, uh, really, this is a prophetic thing going on, and, and they could understand where all of this is headed. This is headed to their salvation. And they, they had joy in it. They had gladness in it. And then really interestingly, it says, then many of the people of the land became Jews because the fear of the Jews fell upon them. And so... People, you don't see many verses like that in the Old Testament about many people becoming Jews. There is, that's always really is the case throughout the Old Testament that the Jews are a light to the nations. But you don't see the fullness of the sort of going out to all the nations and bringing the harvest until uh, Jesus uh, start sending people out, and ultimately he sends us all out to make disciples of all nations. But here you see many of the people became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. And no doubt they were affected by the fact that on the very day that that you know, that, that the Jews were living under this first decree, which was a guarantee that they would be in battle, they'd be in strife, they'd, they'd be, have people, because there was anti-Semitism then, there always has been. Um, Satan hates the Jews, always has, still does to this day. There was still anti-Semitism even at their, after that second decree. So they had a battle coming, but they could be glad in it, they could feast in it, they could have a holiday in it, and, you know, that really affects people when it, you are in the middle of some really intense thing and you have lots of joy in your life. You know, right now, uh, the United States is in um, sort of reeling in a, a financial crisis that the country hasn't seen in 40, 50 years. And it's an opportunity for you to this Christmas, actually, to have a holiday. That's what it says right there in verse 17. They had a holiday. To, to have, you know, you read the paper now, and it's like, oh, there's this glumness out there. But, you know, Christians don't celebrate cr- Christmas because of how big gifts they are, they, they're getting, or how big the gifts are that they're giving. They're celebrating, celebrating Christmas because of Jesus. And so it's a great opportunity. I love Christmas. I absolutely love it. Um, because it is, I think, the best time in the whole year uh, for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Hey, do you mind if I just tell you what Christmas means to me? It's like a really, really easy <laughs> line that, that you, you can have and share with people. And uh, each year I, I write out my testimony to a few people and at, the, at the place I work and give it to them. And I like to share also. 
what Christmas means to you. And so during this uh, financial, uh, you know, financial sort of downward spiral, how wonderful that we can be glad. He has made me glad. He has made us glad. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving in our heart. And um, when, with that kind of witness, the fear of God will def- de- descend on people's hearts. That's what happens when people see that kind of witness. The fear of God will descend upon their hearts. Their hearts will be changed. And that's all our desire, right? To see the hearts of people changed around us. Chapter 9, it says now in the twelfth month, that is, in uh, the month of Adar on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite, let me read that again, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. And that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Now, as we read on, we will decide that this is this is not. You'll see that this is not an offensive thing, offensive thing, as opposed to defensive, uh, on the part of the Jews. It's a defensive thing. The anti-Semitism was strong in the land, and the Jews still had people. Wow, it's legal. I can go kill the Jewish people. And they went out and, and, and tried to do that. And it says, the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. Verse 2, the, the Jews gathered together in their, their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people and, the, and all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, governors, all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with the slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Verse 10, And the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So it says the ten sons of Haman were killed. Now, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. Who is Haman? He was a Agagite. Who is who's what's an Agagite? King Aga Agag. The king of the Amalekites, remember, he is the uh, God through Samuel told King Saul to wipe out all the Amalekites. They were just uh, a people who were the enemies of the Jews, lived in really unspeakable kind of wickedness, right? In the Jews, the midst of the Jews, they were a thorn in the Jews' side. God had told Saul to wipe them all out. He didn't. He preserved some of them. The, among the ones that he preserved, 
at least uh, one of them came back uh, and killed him. And, <coughs> excuse me, and here in, in, in chapter 9, uh, in, in the book of Esther, one of those descendants uh, come back and he's de- trying to destroy the Jews just like the Amalekites always had been. Remember, the Amalekites were the ones who went uh, with Moses and the children of Israel. They came up from behind them and basically started killing the women, children, and the old people. Um, They were just sort of uh, terrorists knocking them off from behind. And that's where... You know, God said to Moses, I am Jehovah Nisi, God, you, God, your victory, your banner. And, uh, but Saul did not kill all the Amalekites, and here they are again trying to kill all the Jews. And as we've said before, the Amalekites are a type of the flesh, they're a type of sin. And the Bible says there's only one response you should ever have to sin to the flesh in your life and that is to completely annihilate it to kill it to not let any of it you know back again i think i've used this um illustration before the blob if you guys see the blob movie from the 50s steve mcqueen you know this gigantic blob starts taking over a city and and uh, they finally, somehow they get, and in, in, you know, it's like sucking up people and this crazy thing. And um, somehow they get rid of it, but at the very end of the movie, there's just a tiny bit of the blob is coming through an air conditioning vent in a movie theater, and you know the blob was coming back to, you know, destroy the city. And it's like that with the flesh. You have to annihilate all of it. You have to... Um, kill all of it, or it will come back to kill you. And the other principle about the flesh is that, you know, you choose the flesh, and so oftentimes you think, well, you know, I'm going to do this sin. I know there's going to be repercussions. I know that there are going to be consequences but it's impossible to overestimate the flesh and sin and the consequences of indulging in it. And you don't know the repercussions of it. And, you know, I see this over and over again. I have a dear, dear friend who conf- confided in me one time that after walking with the Lord for 11 years, he just got tired tired of the body of Christ thing, tired of everything, and left his wife, left his four kids, and he says, I knew I was going to pay for it, but, you know, I knew I could handle the consequences. I just decided I was going to handle it. And I remember the, the day that he came in, he, I was with my friend Robert in Miami, and he, this guy barged through the doors, and he's telling me his son had just hung himself in a jail. And 
around the same time, another one of his daughters committed herself into a mental institution where I believe she is to this day. Another one of his daughters is, um, you know, is having a bunch of kids out of wedlock and just a complete, total mess. You can never, ever sort of figure out, oh yeah, well, I'm going to do this sin and, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to make this calculated decision here. If I do this, okay, I'll be willing to go through that, that, and that. No, no. Because what winds up happening is your sin winds up affecting way, 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 way more people than just you. Look at Haman. Ten sons wiped out. Every one of them killed. He's a type of the flesh indulging in the flesh. And ten of his sons. And your sin will, you know, always wind up impacting your kids. And I, I just heard a story today about this man out in, in, in California who was in a church and he, his father had divorced his mother, his grandfather had divorced his grandmother and his great-grandfather had divorced his great-grandmother. And after 19 years of marriage, he started divorce proceedings against his own wife. And... In his mind, he says, well, you know, this is sort of how things are. So it's a generational thing. And that's how sin is. You know, the sins of the, your sins will just be carried on from one generation to another. And this guy was actually, a, uh, said he was, a, he, he was a Christian. And he was like, did what so many other Christians do today. He was like, well, you know, God's grace will cover it, you know. And I, I'll be able to deal with it. And then he was just overcome just with the, the biblical truth that he had to fight against his flesh. And he had to kill Amalek in his life completely. And he just had to, to, to fight like he's never fought before about anything because he realized, wow, you know, I'm a fourth generation, I'll be a fourth generation divorcee and I have to break this cycle because if not, it's just going to keep on going on and on and on. And, you know, I really admire that testimony because, you know, someone getting in a marriage that they're miserable and, you know, I get it, I understand it. And, but... Um, he obeyed the Lord. He was willing to be miserable for a season and, and fight in this miserable battle, get down in the trenches and, and be willing to, to do what was necessary to uh, you know, take up his bayonet, run to the trenches of the Am Amalekites and bludgeon the Am Amalekites in his life to death. And that's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. And just in our lives, 
we need to put to death Amalek, lest our ten sons be wiped out because of our sin. So all, what a tragedy. I mean, these are real, real kids, real sons, caught up in the consequences of Amalek's sin, Haman's sin. And then it says in verse 13, if it pleases the king, Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to, uh, to do again tomorrow according to today's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So even though they were dead, they hung them on the gallows. So the king's commandment commanded this to be done. The decree was issued to Shushan and they hanged Haman's ten sons and the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of, the, of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the pl- plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's uh, provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. So this is, a, remember the, the Persian Empire is just a vast empire. And so this is happening all around the empire. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder, uh, this was the 13th day uh, of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as the 14th day, and on the 15th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So this is a little hard to follow, but in the city of Shushan, the, it, this this day, this day of um, basically allowing the Jews to protect themselves um, and to overpower their enemies was extended for one day. So outside of Shushan, the Jews rested on the 14th day and feasted and had it says feasting and gladness on the 14th day, but it was on the 15th day that they did so in the city of Shushan because it was extended for one day there. And verse 19 says, Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated on the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month uh, which had turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And so um, a day appointed for their destruction. And, you know, how much more could the tables have been turned? What was meant for their destruction uh, came, they, they, they resulted in something that really resulted in their strengthening in a mighty way. Many of their enemies uh, were put to death. 
And so a holiday was pronounced for the 14th and 15th days of the month. Now the Jews still uh, celebrate this to this day. It's the Feast of Purim. The word pur in Hebrew means the rolling of dice. If you remember, when Haman uh, decided that all the Jews would be killed and, and to figure out which day it would be on, what did he do? He rolled the dice. <laughs> and so um, this is um, just a bit of irony, I suppose, in which the, uh, the, the, the festival, the Jewish festival, celebrating the salvation of the Jews and the, and the fact that that day was turned on its head uh, <clears throat> is called Purim, the day of the dice, I guess it's called. And it takes place in March in springtime and you can go to Israel and it's a, uh, I understand the way they do it is they, on the 14th day, there's celebration in the areas all around Jerusalem and on the 15th day, Jerusalem itself celebrates. And they dress up like Haman and Esther and Mordecai. And, and uh, they have these little skits and plays. And Mordecai comes out and they clap. And when Haman comes out, they boo. And they have everyone eats these big cookies called Haman's ears. <laughs> and um, everyone has a wonderful time. And then it says in verse 30, And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Hashuers with words of peace and truth. You know, any man, any woman of God does not take this kind of thing as an opportunity to sort of consolidate power and sort of continue the slaughter, they take it as an opportunity to, or at at the first opportunity, they um, do everything they can to bring about peace in the land. And that's what Mordecai does. He could have sort of kept on this crusade of, you know, going and slaughtering just the enemies and becoming another Haman, basically. But he was a man of God, and um, it says he he sent letters to all the provinces with uh, words of peace and truth. And then in chapter 10, it says, And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. In other words, his his empire is even prospering more. This, this happens. We see that in the life of Jacob and Laban, and Joseph and Pharaoh, that uh, oftentimes you'll find where you're at, your work or wherever, is just miraculously prospering. And don't let this uh, make you proud or prideful, but it's just a principle that you see in the Bible often happens. Where his people are, are... Uh, the, the, you know, the, the, there was prosperity. Verse 2, Now all the acts of his power and his might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced them, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Media, uh, Media and Persia? And so this is real history happening here for Mordecai. 
The Jew was, a, was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all the countrymen. And so, what do we learn from this book? One that God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful because he will not deny himself. We also learn that Haman is a picture of the flesh. Last time he appears in this story, he's hanging from the gallows. That's what will happen to you, to me, if we start indulging the flesh. Mordecai, however, a type of the Holy Spirit, installed as the prime minister. The book of Romans says, to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and, pre- and peace. That is the way to prosperity, whatever that means. Not always material wealth, but there will be prosperity in your life even as you are follow the Spirit be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. And you see here how God turns the tables, and it's just so important. And we get in these situations in our life, and it looks like the day of our annihilation has been appointed. But it's so easy for the Lord to turn the tables and in the most radical way. Haman, the top dog, ends up as a dead duck. Mordecai, on the death row, ends up as the prime minister. And you ask, will this be true for me? Answer, yes, John 1, 12, to as many as receive Jesus, to many as believe in his name, he gives the right to be sons, daughters of God. And you're a child of God, you're a son, a daughter of God, and this very same principles that we read in this book are a promise for your life. He will turn the tables. He is your deliverer. The most amazing thing about this book, again, is this is a people who were backslidden. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse 8, even while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And you know, when you were saved, whether you understand this or not, and if you don't understand it, it's my prayer that you reach the point in your life where you do, you were in the worst place. You were one ugly duckling. And it's not when you were in church being all spiritual and obedient when he saved you and died for you. It was when you were in your rebellion. And you know that as we grow in grace and as we understand that grace, as we understand how just undeserving we are for everything, everything that we have in our life, mostly just for 
that everlasting relationship we have with the Lord. We will be a reflection of the light of Christ. And people will look at us just as they saw these Jews celebrating. And they'll be drawn to it. And it can be said of our lives, well, the fear of God came upon them and they became Christians. Let that be true for our lives. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for this wonderful picture of your grace and mercy. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that Father, we would be men and women who rejoice, who are glad, who feast and have a holiday. God, even in the middle of, and even in the midst of, of strife and desperate times, Lord, of course, we need your grace. We need the Holy Spirit. Please fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit for that to happen in our lives, Lord. Father, I just pray for anyone, any man, woman in this room where, Father, there's a something ahead of them. It, it's not a day of annihilation, but maybe, but it's just a circumstance that looks, wow. It looks like it's just going to come down like a mighty hammer on their lives and Father, I just pray that you'd fill their heart with faith. And just as you filled Esther's heart with faith as she went into the king, not knowing if she would live or die by doing that. Father, we just thank you for this hope. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for those of you who would like